design and plan and um, your grace and your mercy in making a way in Abraham and his people. And um, we're thankful for this story that shares with us what our story is and our roots. And just pray that tonight that we can take some ownership of that. We can see ourselves embedded within this story and as benefactors and that we can better understand the gospel, better understand the cross, and uh, that it'll just transform our walk and our decisions and our priorities. And um, it just matter to us tonight. We turn this time over to you for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, tonight we're doing something. Um, I'm going to share something with you that I don't think I've shared before. <clears throat> it's a word, toledote. Toledote is Hebrew, is a Hebrew word that kind of describes story. Genesis is made up of ten toledotes, and um, they're not really broken down in a real tidy sense per chapter. In fact, the, what we looked at last week with chapter 10 and then the first part of chapter 11 with Babel, that's one toledote together, but they kind of spill over into two chapters. So... Um, it's not real tidy. So tonight, actually, we're going to be looking at one Toledot that's just a few verses, and then we're going to be looking to the introduction of a really long Toledot that's like 10 chapters long, actually like 13 chapters long. Um, so this little short Toledot we'll, we'll engage first, and then we'll look at this introduction to a long one. And the cool thing about the introduction is you're going to know how to study, you're going to kind of have a guide to how to read about Abraham's life. It's something about just kind of having an introduction to a book. You know, very seldom do we take the time to read an introduction to a book, but when you do, you're glad you did because it gives you the context of why it was written and the context of the story. So let's start with our short one first, uh, starting in verse 10 of chapter 11. It just goes through verse uh, 26 and... Um, I think before I read it, I'll just share a couple of brief introductory remarks. Remember where we are. If you were here last week, remember in the story that where we are is um, chapter 10 is the table of nations, and then the first part of chapter 11 is uh, Babel, where uh, between the table of nations and the sons of Noah spreading out over the face of the earth and having kids and grandkids and all that happening, and then on top of that there was Babel, where there was also a spreading and dispersion that took place, and there was also a scattering of language or a confusion of language that took place. Now, that's, that's the context for where we're going today. The nations have spread all over the earth from Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Babel has painted a picture of a confused humanity out to make a name for themselves. That's like the backdrop of the painting, okay? That's context. And then this next little section is the, is the picture that we're going to look at. In the backdrop of this developing darkness of a confused humanity, confused language, dispersed people that are out to make a name for themselves, it's in that backdrop that God is working out a plan among an elect line that would eventually yield the Alpha Shemite. Anybody know what an Alpha Shemite is, who I'm referring to? Christ. Shemite, if, if you've kind of been on this journey with us, you know that there's the Hamites, the, which really turned out to be Canaanites. Um, there are the Japhethites, which are us, Gentiles. And then there are the Shemites. That's where the term Semitic comes from. If you've heard the Semitic, that's short for Shem. It would be Shemitic. 
So somebody says they're anti-Semitic, that means they're anti-Jew. That, that's where the Jews come from, Shem. So the alpha Jew is Christ. Okay, and Christ is going to come from this line that God, by His design and His plan, is, is developing and propagating and preserving and guarding and protecting and guiding in this backdrop of a confused, dark humanity that's out to make a name for themselves. Okay? Now, something that's kind of cool in these verses that I'm going to read, verses 10 through 26, and I want to just point this out to you. There's a cadence to this verse. I, you know what cadence is? Like in the military, you got a cadence. You sing cadence when you're marching or when you're running, and uh, it helps people stay in step. It's got a beat to it. There's a cadence in this passage, and the cool thing about that, the cadence in this passage, when compared to the table of nations in chapter 10, the table of nations is just kind of this meandering, wandering thing that, you know, it's kind of every sentence is different, every verse is different. But now here, things are in this real strict Cadence, and this is a picture of God sitting on his throne with design and order in what we're seeing right now. Now, he was on his throne in the table of nations, but it's almost like a picture of him allowing the table of nations to unfold, allowing the peoples of the earth to populate and scatter, and also his design and them being confused. But right here, you see purpose, and you just almost hear the drumbeat of the passage unfold while you see God's design about his people and his handiwork in his people, and his order. Okay? Um, and this, this ought to be no surprise to us, because we know just from the previous studies that Noah said that God would be the God of Shem, that Shem was going to be a special man. He would have a special people. Shem actually means the name. So we're looking at the Namites, the people who bear the name in Shem. Okay, let's start with verse 10. <clears throat> These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpashad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpashad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpashad lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpashad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years. You hear him on his throne? You hear design, you hear order, you hear that cadence, that drumbeat, do, 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 do. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and, after, and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ru. And Peleg lived after he fathered Ru 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ru had lived 32 years, he fathered Serug. And Ru lived after he fathered Serug 207 years and after he had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Serug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. That's the end of one little Toledote. It's kind of funny that some of these Toledotes are like 15 chapters long, and then that's one tiny little Toledote right here. And that's, that's the first thing we're going to look at, look at tonight. It won't take long for this little section. Now, in this passage, let me share with you that where it says fathered, like, for example, Shem fathered Arpashad, 
Arpashad, fathered, Shela. That word fathered also means ancestored. It's, now, the reason that's important is because this is not like a closed genealogy. What I say when I say closed genealogy is it doesn't mean that every person in the line is mentioned. There, there, are, disc, there are absences in this line. Okay, if, if every person, or if it was a closed genealogy, this is important, and if it didn't have gaps in it, then all of Abraham's uh, ancestors would have been living when he was born. Like all of them. Okay? Shem would have outlived him by 35 years. It, it, there's, there are gaps. There are big gaps that we don't even know how much time has passed. And I don't know that they're big gaps necessarily. But there are gaps. And these, this list right here in this little teledote are the highlights that help us trace the line. Okay? Now, what phrase do you see repeated in every section? Say it again. Fathered, uh, ancestored. Okay, what else? A phrase. And had other sons and daughters. Let's just talk about that for a minute. What about those guys? I mean, as I'm reading this, and I'm hearing that over and over again, I'm hearing that drum beat hit on, and, he, and they had other sons and daughters. And I'm going, what about those guys? Why aren't they listed in here? Where are they? Why aren't they listed? Let's, let's ask a question. Let's think about it. Let's just kind of muse on that for a minute. Why aren't they listed? Okay, what's the point of the passage? Okay, God's design and God's line. So if they're not listed, what does it mean? If it's obvious, that's okay. Huh? Wasn't important? Okay. In, in that purpose, it wasn't important. But what does it mean if these guys are part of an elect, chosen, design, and line, and other guys' names are not mentioned, what does it mean about them? Exactly. See, the thing you've got to appreciate about this passage, and this is why it's so foreign for so many people to digest the, the truths about election, because we haven't gotten to know the God of the Old Testament and the way the God of the Old Testament works. This is a picture of election. It's all over this story. Keep your finger in Genesis 13 and look over at Romans chapter 9. Now, <clears throat> if you've studied this before, if you studied election before, and you just have a tough time kind of getting your head around it, that's okay. I studied it for some period of time before I, uh, I guess, surrendered to believing that this was completely and absolutely true. I was mad before I was glad about it. But I kind of got frustrated when somebody said, turn to Romans 9. I don't know why I got frustrated, because it's in the Bible. You know, it's not like we, we've got some sort of addendum that we're referencing, some sort of, uh, you know, addition. I mean, this is smack dab in the Bible, okay? You got to know that. But then add an insult to injury, this thing actually talks about Abraham and God's design with Abraham. Listen to what it says in chapter 9, verse 1. Now, let me give you a little context. Paul is writing to the church at Rome trying to explain to them why all the Jews haven't believed on Christ. Like, man, if they were part of his chosen people, why haven't all of them cast themselves at the foot of the cross and why aren't they worshiping him as Savior and Lord? And here in chapter 9, verse 1, he says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Listen, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. He has great sorrow and unceasing anguish because his people, because Paul's a Jew, haven't cast themselves at the foot of the cross. 
He has unceasing anguish as to why they're not believing. He says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He's like saying, I'd give up my own salvation if I could save them. That's how burdened I am for them. He says, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Basically, what he's saying is, these guys, they're Shemites. (laughs) Man, they're on the Shem team. They're Namites. Name, N-A-M-E, dash, ites. Shem means name. They're the people of the name. Man, I'm burdened for them. I wish that they're all there. But then in verse 6, he says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. That's key. In other words, not all the Shemites are going to be true Namites. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. This is commentary on what we're studying right now. People, and listen, if you have a tough time with election, just get, we've got to get to know the God of this Old Testament and how he's worked with people over the ages. It says, For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not or had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. The reason their names are not mentioned is because God can do that, because he's God. That's why he can say, you know what, it's going to be Abram not Nahor. He can do that because he's the creator. If you go on and read the rest of chapter 9, you're like, man, he's, he's the potter, and he can do with the clay whatever he wants to do. So I understand that the concept of election is really hard to get your head around and your heart around, but when you see it, when you get to know Yahweh, this Old Testament God and how he's worked with people over the ages, then you go, oh, well, that's the New Testament God too. <laughs> Why, why? He's not Sybil. I, I'm dating myself. When I was a kid, there was this show on TV. It's called Sybil. It was like this series. It seemed to go on forever with this girl that had multiple, multiple personalities. For those of you all that are younger than me that may not know anything about that, but, man, he's not like in a bad mood in the Old Testament and choosy. And then hey, man, everybody's on a team in the New Testament. Crawl up in my lap while I wear my old man T-shirt and smoke a cigar. <clears throat> He's the same God. He's the same, same God as the Old Testament. Now, even in, in this preferred line, this Shemite line, within that line, just like I read over there in Romans 9, God is electing and choosing His instruments for His plan and for His own glory. There is significant evidence, listen to this, that Abram was born into a pagan, moon-worshipping family. <clears throat> now, these, all, these guys are part of the Shemites, Remember? So you'd think, man, they're on Yahweh's team already. Abram was born in, he was born in a Christian home. You know, that sort of picture. I grew up, I was baptized when I could barely walk, you know. and I've always believed. It wasn't like that for Abram. It was likely he was born into a moon-worshiping home. Terah's family, his daddy, worshiped, likely worshiped the moon god Sin, S-I-N. That's ironic. 
didn't it? He followed sin. He settled in Ur and Haran, both of which were important centers for the moon god cult. Even the names of his daughters, you'll find out later that Sarah was actually one of Terah's daughters. Sarah was, for real, Abram's half-sister. I mean, real. Same daddy, different mama. So that's why he could say, she's my sister and not lie about it. For real. But Sarah and Milcah, who was Nahor's uh, wife, who was actually uh, Haran's daughter. Haran died. You'll look at that in a minute. Both Terah's daughter are named, probably named after Sin's wife and daughter. Sin, the moon god. Sin had a wife, kind of not really a wife, but like his female counterpart. And her name from the original language is connected to Sarai. And then Milcah is connected to their daughter that Sin and this um, female goddess, um, their progeny. And his own name, Terah's own name, is closely related to the Hebrew word for moon. And these observations, look, let me show you something. Uh, you can still keep your finger in Genesis 13. We're, we're done with chapter 9 of, of uh, Romans for now. But look at Joshua chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24, <clears throat> verse 2. It says, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, that's who we're talking about tonight, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Homeboy wasn't born into a Christian home. And God's work of election... He snatched him. It was on a rescue mission. Look over also at uh, verse 14. Of course, there was not. When I say a Christian home, you know I'm being facetious because there was no Christian home then. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. There's a picture here that Abram was born into a home that was a full-fledged pagan worshiping, moon-worshiping. And that God snatched him out of that. God can and does reach into the hopeless and dark and unlikely and desperate and draw his people out. That's the way he works. He's been doing that over the ages. Uh, we were reading Psalms with the kids this morning. We read four different Psalms. And every single one of them, what was the range? 20 through 24 or something like that. And every single one of them had to do David just declaring God as a rescuer. God's in the business of rescuing. And that's what election is. When you really understand election for what it is biblically, you realize it's, elect, it's, it's rescue. I mean, it's rescue from death row, really. And that's what God did with Abram. God was on a rescue mission in electing Abram to be his, the father of his people. Okay, that toledote is over. See, that's tidy and short. And now we're going to move to the beginning of the next toledote. <clears throat> this toledote has to do with Abram's story. And the cool thing about the gear that you're going to get right now, the equipment that you're going to leave with, is you're going to leave with kind of an overview for how to read the next few chapters. And you can begin to do that on your own. You can read ahead. You really you have permission to do that. It's crazy. You just, man, you bust that, open, that Bible open, just start reading ahead, and just rip right on into it. But this Toledot, this next story, is about God's original blessing, the cultural mandate, God blessed uh, the man and woman that he made and said, be fruitful and multiply and um, 
essentially exercise your dominion over the earth and creation. This is the original blessing now finding fulfillment in Abraham and his family and the nation that comes from him. This is the story. Keep your finger in Genesis 13 and look over at Romans chapter 4. I want to show you this passage because I want you to see why this is our story. Romans chapter 4, verse 16. If I called you here tonight, I said, hey, man, I called you on the phone today. I said, hey, Ken, uh, Ken Rodden, look here, man. I need you to come up here tonight. I, I'm not going to pick, I'm not just using you as this because the name comes to mind. Ken, come up here tonight, man. I got to share with you some details about your great, 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 like 400th great granddaddy. I found out some scoop about him tonight. Ken would be up, man, I got to find out what my heritage is. I got to find out who my people are. That's what we're doing right now. That's, this is our story in Abram. So don't get kind of yawny because here it is. Look, now I'm not saying anybody's yawny. I'm not talking about yawny. I'm talking about yawning, like yawning. Okay, Chapter 4, verse 16. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Listen, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. I'm going to have a sermon here in a couple of weeks. This, the title of it is going to be Covenant is Thicker Than Blood. You might think, Man, he's not really my blood, great, 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 Danny, granddaddy, because Japheth is, and then Noah, and then Adam. I'm kind of in a different line, although we're all tied together, ultimately, to Noah. There is a blood connection, but the covenant connection is thicker than the blood. This is our great, 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 great 40th great granddaddy that we're reading about in Abram. Okay, this is our story. It's also our story, too. Because God called him to leave his city. God called him to leave his comfort zone. God called him to leave what he knew as security and all that he knew to go and find the city of God and the promised land. It's our story, too, because it's the same call that we hear to leave this city, essentially the city that is called the world and all its trappings. We don't leave it physically until he takes us out of it. But we're not to live for this stuff. We're supposed to be living for the city to come just like him. We're on a pilgrimage just like Abram was, except we're on a pilgrimage to the celestial city. So this is our story in two respects, because it's about our great, great to the 40th great granddaddy. And because it's our story, it's a picture of the journey and the pilgrimage that we're on. Okay. Now, if you brought pen and paper, then that's great. If you didn't grab a... Um, an offering envelope or something that, that you got in front of you that you can write on, because I want to give you kind of a breakdown of how to read this Toledot. Just three sections. Okay, the first section is the intro. That's what we're going to look at in the next few minutes. The intro is chapter 11, verse 27, kind of the second half of verse 27 through verse 32. That's just the intro to this Toledot, okay, of Abram's story. Chapter 11, verse 27 through 32. It's what we're going to finish up tonight. That We'll finish up the intro tonight. Then the main body of this Toledot, okay, just when I say Toledot, here's story. The main body of this story goes chapter 12, 1 through chapter 22, verse 19. 
It's a long story. It's a lot longer than anything we've read in Genesis so far. So what we're doing right now is we're swooping up in our helicopter and we're looking down over the story and we're just getting a layout of the land before we go land and before we walk on foot. Because it's cool. It's good to know that. It's good to kind of have a sense of where you're going. Chapter 12, verse 1, through chapter 22, verse 19. And then the Toledot finishes, that last section is the transition to the next book. And that's chapter 22, verse 20, through chapter 25, verse 11. Okay, so that's one whole Toledot. Now, here's what's in store in this Toledot. This would be an incredible movie. I mean, if somebody wanted to make a movie. The word is better than the movie because, you know, you read the book, the movie's never as good as the book, that whole phenomenon. So the word is going to be a whole lot better. But I would, I'd like to see a good movie that captured these things. Here's what happens on Abraham's journey. He's charged with trusting God in the face of conflicting feedback. Everything that he's seeing and everything that he's experiencing is completely contrary to what God's promising him. <laughs> Here's, here's, I want to capture some of it for you. First of all, God tells him he's going to go make a great nation, you know, and they're going to number as many as the stars in the sky, the sands on the seashore. But his wife is barren. Uh oh, that's not going to work. He experiences famine in the very land that he's been promised that he will possess. He experiences famine there and has to leave, and then he's exiled to a hostile land. Now, remember, he was in his comfort zone in Ur, or wherever he lived, Ur of the Chaldeans. I mean, he was, man, he was living large. God told him to leave and go. And those are just the first few things. His wife is kidnapped by pagan kings, okay? He has an ungrateful nephew who takes the best land, and it was all promised to him. What nephew am I talking about? Lot, little rascal, Lot. He sees war with mighty kings. His family experiences strife within. If you read about it, you know that the wives kind of get after each other, and it gets pretty ugly. Rival wives and their children. Meanwhile, his body is aging and withering. He faces death, listen, when the promise seems to be yet unfulfilled. And then really kind of the whole where this whole story culminates, or at least where it crescendos, is he's commanded by God to sacrifice his only begotten in whom the promise is supposed to be fulfilled. Now, that's contrary to everything he's hearing, everything he's seeing. It's a good thing that he walked by faith and not by sight, or he'd never made the journey. Are you appreciating that? <laughs> if he'd walked by faith, man, he'd never left Ur. You kidding me, man? Shoot, I got a good here up in the Ur worshiping the moon. We got it going on here. Now, as kind of bookends to this Toledote, God tells him to go. That's kind of the theme of the, the Toledote, go. In the beginning, he tells him to go from his father's house to a land he will show him, show him in chapter 12, verse 1. At the end of the Toledote, in chapter 22, verse 2, he tells him to go, the, go to one of the mountains I will tell you about. What's he going to do on that mountain? He's going to try to sacrifice his son. Technically, he does sacrifice his son. I'm going to share a passage with you from Hebrews that will rock your world. Okay? Now, let me just kind of give you a... If you have some room on your piece of paper there, where you had the three sections with the intro and the main body and then the kind of the closing, let me give you a little thing to write out to the side of the main body. 
There are two acts. Now, when I say acts, don't think of it like a play, like it's fictional or anything. Uh, when I say acts, I'm just speaking of kind of sections, movements. Okay, the first act in the main body is chapters 12 through 15. And this act has to do with the land. Okay? That act begins with God telling him, go to the land that I will give to you. And it ends with, to your descendants I give this land. They're like bookends on Act 1. It's about the land. Act 2 is about the seed. Okay? Act 1 is about the land. Act 2 is about the seed and goes from chapter 16 through 22. It begins with Sarai's barrenness. It develops with Sarai bearing a son, now Sarah bearing a son in chapter 21, verse 2. And it ends with God's promise yet again of numerous descendants in chapter 22, verse 17. And then again, the climax of the whole story is in Genesis chapter 22 where um, Abraham offers Isaac on the altar. And uh, God swears to keep His promise to Abraham in response to Abraham's willingness to offer up even his very own son. Abraham demonstrates his faith by offering Isaac, and in some ways he receives him back from the dead. Let me show you that verse. I alluded to it a minute ago. Stay in Genesis. Look over at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19. I'll start in verse 17 while you're turning, just for context. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in, in the act of offering up his only son of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. you got to take that in. you just got to appreciate that this promised son that you've got in hand now, that you've been raising, that he's your lad, that he's going to carry the wood that you're going you're gonna to place him on up to the mountaintop, and he's asking, hey, Pop, where's the lamb? <laughs> and he says, oh, don't worry, son. God will provide one. I mean, you've got to take this in and appreciate that it's incredible stuff of faith. He considered that God was able. Listen to what, he, what it says. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. He was as good as dead. I mean, the knife is raised. You've seen the paintings. What's the famous painting I'm thinking of? You've seen it before with a knife raised. Whoosh. Who's the famous painter of the Sistine Chapel? Yeah, didn't he do one of with the knife? He's got that knife raised. And, ooh, man, it's, it's powerful. And he did receive him back from the dead. He was as good as dead. Okay, let's go back to Genesis, 13, or Genesis 11. This story ends with Abraham facing death. Now listen to this in chapter 23. You want to read a chapter that'll just, if, if you climb into the story, a chapter that'll just make you almost cry. It's hard to think about a man losing his wife, but to think about how this whole thing unfolds. Chapter 23 is a picture of Abraham. He's moving toward the end of his life. He's still not seeing God's promise fulfilled. He's still living for that city to come. And the only portion of the land that was promised to him that he owns is the little portion that he bought to bury Sarah. And he paid a premium for it. They wanted to give it to him. He said, no, I'm paying for it. And he pays a premium for that land to bury his wife. And then he goes off and dies shortly thereafter. 
That's all he got. And remember, God's promised him, go to this land that I'm going to give to you. And yet he hadn't seen it because he was living by faith, not by sight. He paid an extremely high price for this little plot in faith, knowing that God would keep his promise and give this land to his descendants. One of the things that Abram saw, Abraham saw that we don't really have a view of is that he was leaving a heritage and a legacy. It wasn't just about him. And then I die. He's thinking about son, grandson, people. He's thinking about generations after him. And this legacy of faithfulness that he left for his generations is something that we're benefactors of, that we know his story and that is our story. It's awesome. Now, before we actually look at the beginning of this last or this next toledote, I want to just show you the gospel of Abraham. The gospel of Abraham is really just kind of a picture of Christ in the Old Testament. Okay, Just be looking for this as you read the story. Look for these things to come out. First of all, the hope of Abraham and the nations depends on God fulfilling his promise to give a son. I hear that again. The hope of Abraham and the nations depends on God fulfilling his promise to give a son. In his case, it's Isaac. And in a future case, one that we're benefactors of, it's our shared Lord, Christ. Okay? Both Isaac's birth and Jesus' birth are miraculous. Isaac is born to a barren old woman, and Jesus is born to a young virgin. In both cases, miraculous. Both sons have to die and be raised. Hear that. Both sons have to die and be raised. In Isaac's case, it's typically. And when I say typically, I'm not talking typically like, yeah, it's typical. I'm talking about like a type of the real death, the real sacrifice. Isaac was a type of Christ. And he had to die and be raised. Now, I just shared with you in Hebrews chapter 11, it's as if he did die and come back from the dead. Because that knife was raised, it was a done deal. And in Christ's case, it had to do with a literal death and resurrection. If you want to jot down a passage that will rock your world, jot this down. 1 Corinthians 15, 16 through 19. Look at that later tonight. 1 Corinthians 15, 16 through 19. You'll understand why Christ had to be raised from the dead. That if he wasn't raised from the dead, then none of us would have any hope of being raised from the dead. And we're a bunch of fools. <laughs> we're the most to be pitied if Christ wasn't raised from the dead. He had to be. Okay, the next picture of Christ in the OT and Christ in this story is that God enacts his covenant with Abraham in connection with sacrifice. That's in uh, Genesis chapter 15, verses 7 through 21. And God initiates the new covenant with the church through the sacrifice of Christ. Circumcision is the sign of Abraham's covenant. And what's the sign of our new covenant? Huh? In some ways. The Presbyterians would say that that's it. Um, no. In, in some ways, you could say that, that that is a picture, but it's not the sign I'm thinking of. Keep your finger in there. Let's look at Luke chapter 22, verse 20. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. It's the cup that's the sign that we should see. Circumcision in the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. And for us, it's the cup of the new covenant. 
That's why taking the Lord's Supper is no joke. Man, it's a big deal. We're participating, we're engaging and enjoying that new covenant that we're a part of. Okay, here's the next picture. Abraham has to leave home to be faithful, becoming an alien and a sojourner in an unfamiliar land. And like him, the church confesses to have left home. Now, we're here, still here physically, but like him, we're sojourners and aliens now in this, in some ways, different alien foreign land. There's passages to go along with this if you guys are ever interested in stuff like this. I may do a little more study than I share on Wednesday night, but for those that really like to climb in deep, I can connect you with these passages. Here's the, the last one. Both Abraham and the church lived and lived by faith, hoping for a city to come. His story is our story. And his picture of faithfulness to be is to be our picture of faithfulness. I, mean, I am going to show you this. Hebrews chapter 11. Just look over briefly at verse 10. This is speaking of Abraham. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So he wasn't so much living for the land that was promised to him. He was living for that celestial city. And that's our story too. It should be. Look at uh, the same chapter, verses 39 and 40. And all these, all these heroes of the faith, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. That's kind of a theme. They did not receive what was promised. They're living by faith, not by sight. If they were living by sight, then they'd say, oh, I hadn't gotten it, so I'm bailing on this program. They were living for something as yet unseen. And since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. What's better for us is this celestial city, this heavenly city that we're living for, and this eternity with Christ. You can go on to study in chapter 12. Therefore, because of that, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. We're living for that future city, and we're laying off all these encumbrances. Brad Carwell and I were talking just the other day about this illustration this guy was sharing. This has really nothing to do with the sermon, but it's just such a, or the study, but it's just such a good illustration. This picture of Abraham living for this city to come, the reason that he would walk away from his comfort zone in Ur, uh, Chaldeans, and go to this place and basically live as a sojourner and an alien. If you knew that you, could, uh, that you had six months in France and that everything that you bought there had to be left in France, but everything you sent home, you could get when you got home, how much would you buy in France? Would you equip your apartment there in France with the finest furniture? Would you be driving the finest Renault um, speed car, racing around the streets, be wearing those fine French pointy shoes? Would you be spending all that money in France, realizing that you're just there for a little while? (laughs) No, you're living for that home that you're going back to. And that's our picture, that we're living for this celestial city. That's why we live light. We're mobile and agile while we're here. That's why we're living like those guys on the night of Passover where he says, you need to have your loins girded. You need to have your gear packed. You need to be ready to move out. Travel light. That's our story. This is our story. Okay, let's move to the introduction of the last total dose. Just a couple brief notes after it, and um, then we'll be ready next week to climb in to the meat of the story. Verse 27 of chapter 11, Genesis. Now, these are the generations of Terah. 
Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Those are the three boys. And Haran fathered Lot. Now Haran died. Okay? Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. So Milcah is uh, Nahor's niece. Okay, that It was not against the, the, the rules then. <laughs> you can marry your niece. You can marry your sister. It was just a different program, you know. <laughs> We're not on that program now. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. <clears throat> Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Okay, <clears throat> now, I've kind of started acquainting you all with chiasms. If you're here for the first time tonight, you're going, okay, where, where's he going right now? Let me, let me just kind of t- share with you briefly. A chiasm is like a, 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 a writing instrument. It's kind of a storytelling instrument that shapes a pyramid in the story. And you can just kind of flip the pyramid up and kind of get a handle on how this story unfolds. These chiasms are these literal instruments that kind of set off these parallel statements to where they called something important at the very top, at the top of the pyramid. Okay? So I'll just tell you right now, I'm going to show you what the chiasm is in, the, in this passage. But let me just ask you, if, if you know there's a chiasm here and you know that a chiasm serves a purpose of bringing out something that's really important, what is that something that's really important in this little paragraph? That's right. That's it. That's what drives the whole story of this whole total dough. You've got to appreciate that, the, the tension that that creates. You're going to go, you're going to be as numerous as the stars, as numerous as the sand on the seashore, and oh yeah, Sarah, Sarah doesn't have any kids. She's barren. You've got to appreciate the tension that that's going to develop when you've got this God promise. I mean, the clouds have parted. You had these visions and this darkness. God speaks into this darkness, this incredible promise, and you're old and your wife's old and she's barren and never had a kid. You've got to appreciate how that, that's going to develop and create this story. Now, let me show you the chiasm. Remember, I kind of do this where I do it visually. If you can write it out, you can do that, but it's, most of you are probably not into it as much as I am, but I think it's kind of cool. All right, here's the, the first side of the, the chiasm on this side. There's the introduction where Terah and his offspring are verse 1. On the other side is the conclusion of this little paragraph, which is the summary of Terah's life and his death. The next part up is the family lives in Ur of the Chaldeans, and Haran died. On the flip side, the family leaves Ur of the Chaldeans and settles in Haran. The next part is Abram takes... And you got to, there, there's Hebrew words here that key you in to this is not just some fictional weirdo thing that people just have a lot of time on their hands. There's Hebrew words that are used in parallel that help bring out this chiasm. He, Abram takes, it's the same word, he takes Sarai. Nahor takes Milcah, whose father is Haran. On the flip side of that, Terah takes Abram and Sarai and Lot, whose father is Haran. And then right at the top, Sarai is barren. She has no children. That is so important to the rest of the story. 
you got to appreciate that. Now, just a couple of brief notes about barrenness, and then we'll shut down for the night. First of all, I already told you Nahor, Nahor marries his niece. It's not forbidden in those days. Sarah is actually Abram's half-sister. They share daddies. Terah is Sarai's da- daddy and Abram's daddy. They have different mamas. If you want to look that up, that's in chapter 20, verse 12. But here's the picture of barrenness I want to point out. Sarai's barrenness introduces a God pattern that you'll see all over the Old Testament. This picture of barrenness. First of all, there's Sarai, and then there's Rebecca. Genesis chapter 25, verse 21. She was barren. Then there's Rachel. Chapter 29, verse 31. She was barren. Then there's Hannah. 1 Samuel, chapter 1, verse 12. She was barren. And it just goes to show God's incredible kingdom of God, a contrary kingdom sort of design where he takes the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. He takes the least likely to confound the wise. He takes the least likely for his design and his plan where the world is going, she's barren. (laughs) She's a virgin girl. You kidding me? He's a carpenter's son. That's the way God works. So if you feel like, man, I'm especially common, embrace it. You feel like you're especially foolish? Embrace it, man. But let's be fools together. Fools for Christ. Thank goodness he takes the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. I love that about God, that he doesn't take the shiniest and the finest, but takes the common things. In this story that we're going to spend the next, I don't know how many weeks we'll spend in it. In this story, through a childless old couple, God will create a whole new humanity. The Old Testament and New Testament are not separate. They're connected. That's, that's all one story. It's our story. Through him and this story, he will create a whole new humanity. You know, in, he, in Ephesians where Paul writes about put off the old man and put on the new, our Western minds envision, envision this, this, this individual. I'm, I'm taking off the old bin and I'm going to put on the new bin. It's not individual. It's a corporate picture. Put off the old humanity and put on the new humanity. That's the humanity this story is about. It's a whole new humanity, hopefully, of which we're part of. And this humanity is born not of the will of a husband, but by the will of God. Covenant is thicker than blood. It's a great story in store. So I appreciate y'all braving tonight. It was a transitional night, but it was necessary stuff. You needed the gear for the next few weeks. You needed the equipment. Um, Hopefully you've got kind of an outline there of how to study these next few weeks and how to read ahead. Just climb into the story like it's a story about your great, great to the 40th great granddaddy. Like you own it. Because if you're a believing on Christ, it is your story. You may just not realize it. It's not some something that's outside of us, but it actually is our story that we're in the middle of. All right? Let me pray and we'll dismiss a few minutes early. <clears throat> God, thanks for our time together tonight in these uh, Toledotes. Thanks for things that are uh, usually obscure and discreet and read over quickly. Um, just appreciate them revealing your design and your plan and your sovereignty and your election and things that just reveal to us your character and um, your pattern of redemption. Uh, Lord, I hope uh, and pray that it just helps us appreciate and embrace our commonness and our foolishness and our unlikeliness and that it just creates a just a surprise grace and an enjoyment of grace and um, a uh, satisfaction and contentment that we wouldn't have otherwise if we thought that you were beholding to us. 
Just pray that it shows us how you, uh, how you work and how you operate. It shows us a picture of you on your throne, your design, your plan over the ages that we are part of. Lord, we love you so much, and uh, we look forward to our study of Abram in these next few weeks. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks, y'all.